Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, a post-LRT task force is being assembled to consider projects in Hamilton. Is this like getting socks and underwear for Christmas? The Conservative Party has some new challenges for this year. Not only a new leader, but a new direction for the party. And with a new year comes new changes to Ontario laws. We'll give you an update. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, we found out just prior to Christmas that uh, Hamilton would not be getting an LRT for Christmas. Uh, And uh, many were blindsided in the city by this, uh, saying they weren't even aware that the meeting was going to come down with uh, uh, Minister Mulroney way back when until the last minute. And we all know what happened. Uh, and the Conservative government, Donna Skelly, MP, uh, MPP, said on this show that, you know, this is a great opportunity for Hamilton. It's a great gift. You're getting $1 billion that's going to come anyway. And again, I remember having this argument way back when, before this announcement, I don't know, somewhere during all of this debate debacle. You know, $1 billion to fix things that would have been fixed anyway. Uh, Let's take our billion dollars and put it into infrastructure, into now fixing roads or bridges or filling potholes or what have you. But isn't that what we pay tax for? Would that not have happened anyway? And what's to suggest that this money is actually going to be spent on these projects that wouldn't have been spent just through part of the maintenance plan? That's what we pay taxes for. Uh, to talk more of all, about all of this, Larry DeAnne is with us, former mayor for the city of Hamilton. He is on the line now. Larry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Round and round she goes where it'll stop. Nobody knows. Scott, yeah. happy new year. Thank yeah. you. And happy new year to you too, Larry. Um, I, I guess, and I remember bringing this up prior to the cancellation of this project when there was chatter floating around that, uh, you know, we could be better spending the billion dollars for other things. Is this not a smokescreen, Larry? I mean, to me, what are they going to give us or build for $1 billion that isn't part of a maintenance plan anyway? I mean, this is money that should have been coming from the government to 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 update these projects or refurbish bridges and, and infrastructure and whatever needs to be done. Where is this money going to go? Well, so I guess the um, the answer to that is in in the process that is being established according to the news. Anyway, they're setting up a task force, a provincial task force, to see how to spend that money, and they've widened. Uh, again, according to the news, if it's accurate, and it should be accurate, the news came from the minister's office. They've widened the scope of uh, of discussion around uh, the use of this money, uh, not just for public transit uh, directly in terms of LRT or or buses, or but also uh, uh, transportation modes. Uh, highways and and uh, uh, such systems so what that says to me is that um you know in hindsight is always 2020 of course but what that says to me is that look we're the government um you have asked us for our money and therefore we are going to direct this process um we are establishing a task force that will report to us and then we will decide how that money is going to be spent I mean, that's what it says to me. Hopefully, they will work with the city of Hamilton uh, that's been doing planning for the last 10 years 
that has, as you said, a long list of infrastructure projects uh, that it also needs to do quite apart from uh, uh, transportation, uh, LRT, uh, uh, public transit. And um, there's never enough money to accommodate all of that deficit in infrastructure. <clears throat> so Hamilton's done some of a lot of the spade work, perhaps all of the spade work, around those various projects, and, and uh, hopefully the pro- provincial government and the federal government, because we learned the other day that the mayor is in discussions with the federal minister as well, hopefully all three will come together and decide which path to take. Would this money not have been spent on this stuff either way? Well, it would have, except that, remember, we do have a long uh, deficit, a, a deep deficit, around uh, infrastructure. I recall uh, a previous uh, manager of public works who was in charge of uh, the department that looks after all of this telling council a few years ago, and he got a little bit of trouble for saying it, that there isn't enough money and some roads are, may, may turn out to be gravel roads as opposed to uh, nicely paved uh, roadways. I think he was exaggerating to make a point, but the point is that there's never enough money uh, to do all of these projects, so more money added to the uh, to, to the to the coffers of the city, um, one way or the other, would help expedite uh, some of those projects as well. Will the public? But you're right. Sorry, you're right, ahead. though. Sorry, but but you're right. I mean, uh, all of those projects are on the list already. It's not that they have to invent them; they're already on the list. They're just waiting funding. Will the public recognize these projects? Will they recognize when? Oh, all of a sudden, there's a billion dollars has been pushed into the city. So they should. Now, if it's a, a dramatic um, initiative like the LRT would have been, where there's a nice new, sh- uh, uh, shiny new train uh, running from Eastgate to McMaster and via all of those uh, various uh, stops along the way, uh, then that is very recognizable, and a lot of people would hop onto that uh, train. It would uh, uh, change the traffic direction along King. It would reroute some buses, it would add buses elsewhere if you had got this fancy new uh, LRT now uh, going down the tracks. So they would recognize that. If, on the other hand, you're going to fix sewers, that's important. But do we recognize that? I mean, that's why councils in the past uh, got into trouble, because they only did stuff above ground and didn't look after the stuff below ground, which was extremely important. And then when we have these catastrophic breaks or floodings, uh, then, you know, you got to spend the money. So will public recognize it? I think government will try to make it very evident how they're going to spend this money, uh, but some projects will be more evident than others. Uh, in the end, is this a good uh, consolation prize? Well, you know, so the, the, the community, whether you like the project or not, the community knew that the project was going ahead. Some hoped that it wasn't uh, to be um and and many uh, yearned for this LRT to you know get off the ground, uh, and money was spent. Uh, you know, depending on whose estimates you believe, it's you know up to a couple of hundred billion dollars has been spent acquiring properties and all of that stuff. So so that was the preferred route. We there was a civic election on that issue that uh, that supported that strategy. But the government uh, of the day, and that's the provincial government, that was going to fund uh, a lot of uh, the, uh, uh, at least the, the capital side of this uh, project, um, has come along and said, we've changed our priorities. Uh, we no longer believe in it because, according to what they say, 
the costs are too expensive. Now, there are those who are gnashing their teeth and wish that it would be um, elsewise. Uh, there are those who are hoping the government changes its mind, and it may. There's lots of pressure being put uh, to bear, I understand. But as of today, they've canceled that project. They've shut Metrolinx's involvement in it down. And they're saying, we're going to look for other alternatives, which will benefit the city. We'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, the uh, premier said that he doesn't want to put this tax burden on uh, the backs of Hamiltonians. Uh, Skelly said Hamilton can't afford it. How can Kitchener, Waterloo, Mississauga, Ottawa, everybody else afford it, but Hamilton can't? Well, and, and those are the questions, and maybe we'll get some clarity once the uh, Auditor General, uh, Ms. Lysik, um, uh, delves into some of the numbers. Um, my feeling is that it was a political decision. I think that, um, that um, uh, the province read the mood of council uh, on this issue, that it wanted the province to pay 100% of this, uh, and um, they looked at the division among councillors as well. Remember, at the last municipal election, a whole bunch of councillors uh, supported the guy that didn't want the LRT, even though the guy that did, the current mayor, won overwhelmingly. Mm. Uh, a lot of the councillors went the other way. So it certainly that, is. It certainly is an easy sell for the Conservative government, isn't it? It, it's, it, it, it is yeah, an easy so. sell because Hamilton is dead by delay. And well, and that's and that's part of their calculation. I think. I, I I think, you know, like all political calculations, there's some there's some validity to them, and there may be some flaws in those calculations, because once the election was over, and and I've spoken to a number of those councillors, they understood that the overwhelming majority of Hamiltonians pushed in one direction, and that was towards LRT. Um, so now that the province comes and takes the heat off of councillors yeah. uh, to, to kill the project, they've done it themselves, and they're saying we're going to make Hamilton better. Uh, the proof will be in, in uh, the, the, the proof of pudding will be in, in, in exactly what is done uh, once, once the decisions are announced and once this task force is put into place. And, and I'm hopeful that, uh, that the members of the task force will be uh, individuals who are fair-minded, uh, that will look at things uh, in the cold heart of day rather than from a, a partisan lens or from a preconceived um, a notion as to where we should go, and uh, they'll do what's best for the city. I mean, to some extent, Scott, it's not a bad problem to have. You're going to have a, a you're going to have a, a panel of of Hamiltonians, and I would hope that they are Hamiltonians advising the province on how to spend money in Hamilton. So however you shake that, mm -hmm. it's always good for the city to have money spent on needed projects in the city of Hamilton. It isn't in keeping with what was promised in the past, and it's not in keeping with council has, has voted for, and that's the politics side of it. Yeah. And that'll, you know, that'll sort itself out as to who gets blamed for that uh, over the long haul and and who comes out uh, the winner in terms of the uh, uh, how how this is presented to the voters? But in but but in terms of what is being done, it's a group of people focusing on Hamilton and spending dollars in the city, and that is not bad. Um, I just can't help but thinking of the time I had Kathleen Wynne on the show prior to the last provincial election, and her literally laughing 
that counsel was still debating all of this, even after the check, uh, you know, even after she had already made the announcement. And, you know, I, I just can't help but shake my head. And people are getting mad at the conservatives for this. Is The conservatives had nothing to lose here. They had nothing to lose because Hamilton has given them so many options to bail out. Well, and, and that is that is a uh, calculation I'm sure that's not lost on, on the provincial government. But I would argue that they, that they did have something to lose. Um, they, you know, there are some numbers that they threw up that are being questioned, at least uh, not, not doubted at this point, but certainly questioned. And, and there's going to be uh, some, some uh, good scrutiny on whether those numbers were real or not. And the premier himself several times said that, that Hamiltonians have made up their minds and we're going to do this project. So, you know, losing political face is, is part of a, a big calculation as well. But I think they felt comfortable and confident enough that if they replaced it with something, with something that's better for Hamilton, despite the fact that it may not be wanted by the current leadership or some of the councillors or m- much of the community, if they replaced it with something that people will say at the end of the day, hey, you know what, this is pretty good, then they'll win. But we'll see. It has to be done in an appropriate way. And again, hopefully people who will advise the minister and the government provincially will be hopefully people who have good uh, um, uh, bona fides, uh, who will take their tasks seriously uh, and uh, don't have any preconceived notions as to what kind of recommendations they should make. Uh, Is this dead, Larry? I mean, is this dead or is this delayed? Well, and, and so this is the confusing part, right? Because uh, I was there, uh, as you know, when the minister came and never made the announcement, but the announcement was to stop and kill uh, the process and, and stop the LRT because it's unaffordable. And then shortly thereafter, when all hell broke loose, there were comments made both by the premier and the, and the, uh, and the minister that, well, you know, if things are recommended in a certain way by this panel, uh, maybe we'll put it back on the rails. Well, so I mean, I'm really confused by that. I, I totally am. It's it's mixed messaging um, um, at its worst. I, I think the messaging is just as mixed coming from Hamilton, and I think that's why the government did this because they knew they'd tick off half the city, but the other half would be happy because they can't make up their mind. Well, except you know, if you were to talk to to uh, the mayor, uh, as I'm sure you have, he will tell you the city did make up its mind. Yeah, yeah. When he received uh, seventy-eight thousand votes versus fifty thousand, mm-hmm. uh, that's a huge majority. That's a huge plurality that supported uh, his project. So you know, the democracy. You're going to have. You're going to have. Uh, uh, it's it's majority rule, right? Yep, yep, yep. Um, and and the majority certainly spoke. So so I think if you looked at that, if you looked at the moves that the the council itself, in spite of the internal strife and the debates, they approved the project that saw this expenditure of uh, by Metrolinks of uh, you know close to two hundred million bucks, if you believe uh, that, that uh, estimate. That that's a pretty solid confirmation that the project should go forward. So what happens now with those that have uh, invested in development, uh, considering this train is going to go through? I mean, there's a lot of big players here, including Leuna. I mean, how much pressure do they put on the government? Oh, I think they put considerable pressure on the government. They were the only union that I'm aware of, I may be wrong, but I don't think so, 
that supported uh, Mr. Ford during the last election, and they are a considerable force uh, to be reckoned with. Uh, they had their own reasons for supporting the government, and but they did, full-throated. I remember uh, Mr. Mancinelli and Luna having a rally at Queen's Park uh, exhorting its tens of thousands of members to vote for uh, the Conservatives because they'd get a better shake from that government. So um, now that he's saying, you know, don't even come to Hamilton for the next little while because people are uh, really irate, that's a sea change in terms of their attitude towards this government. So I, and, and I know for a fact, because I was at a function when the Premier singled out a representative from Leuna uh, in his little elevator speech as he's talking to, 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 to the audience that, that was there before him. There are others there. They, he didn't single anybody else out. He did single out um, uh, representative from, from that particular union. So I think he values their support and, um, and we'll have to have a conversation with that union and its leadership as to why the minds have been changed, um, provincially, uh, on this project that Leuna was again very supportive of. And Leuna, as well as being a union, as you know, is a developer and they're developing. Mm-hmm multi-millions of dollars of projects in our downtown student residences and 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 uh condo projects i mean the, the list goes on they are a significant and important force in the city of hamilton the jobs that they create and the revitalization that they've provided for the city means that they need to be paid attention to whether the premier will or not depends to be seen so where is this going in your mind well so i think the next uh, conversation um, to be had is when this panel is appointed. Uh, who's on the panel? Uh, what's the mandate of the panel? Uh, what's the timeline? Uh, what are they going to be looking at? I mean, if you look at social media now, since they announced that they'll be looking at all transportation uh, projects, not just um, uh, public transit, um, including highways, mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but but um, uh, there are already uh, folks on, on uh, including counselors, uh, on social media have been have been criticizing that and seeing that as the as the uh, you know final nail on the coffin of LRT, if that were to happen, because it diverts money away from from a project that's already uh, by the admission of the government already too expensive. Um, but if if they're concerned about that, they haven't really been paying attention. Because this government came here to say that project is dead. Larry Deani has been with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton. Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Conservative Party has had some challenges this year, despite uh, a, a, a reasonably better election outcome, uh, including having to choose a new leader. And now the direction of the party, what direction uh, for the party will that new leader uh, take the party in? Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman of Summa Strategies. He's advised them all, and he is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Happy New Year to you. And to you as well. It's uh, it's the beginning of a new decade, as has been offset. I can't even remember the last ten years went by very quickly, but they were wonderful. How do you compare? How do you compare the last year to others politically? Has this been a, has this been more divisive than ever? Uh, are we feeling more cranky than ever? Or is that just the mood we're in right now? 
well, we, we should have had a worn, looked at our 2018 mood ring and then our 2019 mood ring, I guess. They right. still sell mood rings. Uh, I think when you have elections, people tend, you know, you, you get a bit more uh, crankiness come to the fore. Even in 2015, when Justin Trudeau won on a wave of, of hope and doing things differently, there was still some uh, crustiness in the air. I think, though, what we've seen uh, coming out of 2019 into 2020, that the, you know, the disaffection people feel in the West and in Atlantic Canada, Canada in certain parts is more pronounced, and there's no easy way out of it. And I don't think it's going to go anywhere quickly. So it's going to be have something political leaders are going to have to manage over the next few years. How? What is Justin Trudeau's New Year's resolution? How does he move <laughs> forward with this in a new year? Well, it's probably not unlike the way he was trying to end 2019, which is try to be less of a lightning rod, uh, try to be less of the cause of people's angst and, and the healer-in-chief. He likes that latter role. He overdoes it, as we know, from time to time in that role. But I think he wants to be less of the antagonist. I mean, they've been pretty smart. They've been the liberal government right now, Scott. Uh, at the end of 2019, trying to keep the focus on the conservatives and the, and the turmoil that they have had and uh, just go about their business, whether that's doable uh, for the long haul. It's certainly doable in the medium term as the conservatives look to get a new leader. But I think Trudeau will maybe try and shun the spotlight a little bit until he can't resist its glare anymore. To me, the first term seemed less about policy and more about a feeling. It was more about sunny ways. It was more about how we're just going to do good in the world. Now you're breaking into Boston, isn't that? <laughs> I believe it. I can't Wow, remember. look at you. Were you listening uh, yeah, to a lot of classic to, rock I, over I, the holidays? So many decades back, Scott <laughs> Will probably can't even find that track, I tell you. But uh, um, do we yeah, need, do we need look, more results than a feeling, I guess my point. Yeah, it was it, it was about changing the tone, or that's how Trudeau portrayed it. But in the end, it it ended up that the tone that he wanted to make more lofty and more inspiring ended up being ugly and dirty and black faced, if you will, uh, as we came out of the election and you saw the the prime minister at the end of the or through the election, you know, picking fights with premiers and turning up the rhetoric uh, against them to win, uh, though they all seem to have found peace heading into Christmas. Let's see where we are by the time the Ides of March hit us. Uh, he, he said way back when, uh, uh, towards uh, right after the election, he was disappointed that the country seems more divided than it is united. In his attempt to make us all feel better, did he actually divide us? I think he certainly angered some people and made them feel less comfortable in Canada. I mean, I think Alberta, even before Jason Kenney, saw it with when Rachel Notley was there, and Premier Kenney's only been in, what, a little over a year himself, um, or is it quite a year, year in April, I guess, uh, has, uh, they weren't happy. Um, they weren't happy with the fact that the prime minister didn't seem to appreciate uh, the energy power that they had, an opportunity that they had, and felt that, he was, and some of his ministers were rubbing it in their faces, true in Saskatchewan. So he didn't lead the journey of healing, right? And I think when, uh, yes, he was attacked by premiers, but ultimately somebody's got to say, I'm going to go step above this. And Trudeau didn't demonstrate that he was prepared to do that to a degree maybe you'd like the prime minister to do. In some ways he behaved 
a lot like Trump, right? Uh, he was egging on people. He was deliberately antagonistic. And maybe that's the politics of the day we live in. And when you're like that, you're going to piss people off. He seems uh, a little more humble at this point. Uh, is that the future moving forward? Is that which is that what will bring him success? Because we all seem to jump on board when it was sunny ways and everything was happy. Will he be as effective attempting to be more diplomatic? Maybe, uh, but he still has tough choices to make, right? And I, I don't think he can just smooth those over with a warm disposition. Uh, yeah, they, they do have to decide how aggressive they're going to be or not be on climate change. And, and they were getting pillared, as you know, from, from, from the left and from certain environmentalists for approving TMX. They've got a big project now to potentially approve the Frontier Project, also in Alberta, that the government of Alberta is, is pushing forward, and many Canadians want to see come forward so he's going to have he's still going to have to make decisions those decisions are going to have outcomes those outcomes are going to anger some people and delight others i think he just has to own the tough decisions he's going to make and try and explain them in a fulsome way as opposed to attacking the people who oppose them uh now uh where are the liberals at this point now that the conservatives have decided to push off uh, a new leadership convention uh from april until november does that buy them time is that well, can, can you relax yeah. for a bit yeah well i don't know if you can ever relax in a minority government but it certainly they're they know that their peers are not uh pushing aggressively for an election you know the money situation has not changed quickly does not change quickly in federal politics. The NDP have no cash. The Conservatives may have more money than others, but they have no no leader, permanent leader. The Bloc, they're just happy they found uh, a new life and they're going to do everything they can to stay around and, and be relevant. So they'll probably feel a little less pressure, though, you know, their budget getting passed, which will be their big thing in, in the spring, in the winter, uh, is, n- is no guarantee. But I'd still give it probably 90% odds that'll get through. Uh, what about why the PC uh, leadership convention moved from April to November? This was happened during the uh, Christmas holidays. Uh, many hoped that this would be over by April and, and the Conservative Party would be on to a new leader. How come yeah, the no, reason for dragging this out? The policy convention. That's You're right. I don't think... No, yeah, they were deciding whether to make the policy convention a leadership lead, convention. Yeah, and they haven't made that, as far as I know. I've been in the woods for two days, but I haven't been totally out of contact. I don't think they've decided yet on the uh, on the date and location of the leadership convention. I expect that will come in the next uh, couple of weeks, uh, or maybe, bits, maybe in the next week, but more likely two to three weeks. Um, but they moved the policy convention out to November. That makes some sense for them, because... If they are, in fact, going to elect a leader before that, you know, June is a date, uh, the month of June often gets mentioned, end of May, then they want to give that leader uh, the opportunity to gather again with uh, <clears throat> with the party to set policy, and that's still within the calendar year. They, I think they do need to do it within the calendar year uh, because uh, of the history of minorities who don't last long generally. So where is this then? Is Is the convention in April still on at this point? No, it's off. So it is off. It's pushed back to November, and yeah, it's will there off to November? And th- and that's that's the policy. That is the policy convention. They haven't right. set out when the leadership. Uh, people still call it a convention, but it's basically a results day because all the voting gets done in different locations and sometimes on site. But that hasn't been set out yet. How early do you think uh, it will be before we see a leadership race? 
as I say, I think in the next two to three weeks we'll get a sense of when when it might be. I, I would be surprised if they um, if it was before the beginning of May. I, I think it's sometime before the summer hits. I think right. they want to elect the leader, as I say, late May, uh, late June, perhaps, so that that leader has the opportunity to get to know Canadians over the summer and build the party and and, uh, and and build his or her team accordingly. So I that's probably the window they're working. So we could see a new Conservative leader by spring then? We could. I, I, I expect, as I say, by Canada Day, I would be shocked if there isn't a new Conservative leader. Now, what to do in the interim? Should Andrew Scheer stay on or should, I mean, for convenience sake, that would seem to be the most likely thing to do. That being said, does the party want to strip itself of that image prior to a leadership convention? Well, I, I've, I've written that perhaps he should move on, but I don't think he's listening to me. I think he, you know, who knows again what reflection he's currently doing and what he may come back with next week. Most people are still off for a few days um, and start next week. Um, I, I do think he should go. I think an interim leader would help uh, because when Parliament returns at the end of January, all the Liberals are going to need to do whenever there's a controversial issue is just say, hey, Mr. Sure, what about your stuff? Hey, Mr. Sure, what about your stuff? So you're looking to rebuild and your leader is not helping you in that capacity, then he ought to think about uh, what he uh, what he does. Maybe he does. I don't know. It's been very quiet in Camp Shear from what I can see at this point. Uh, and it seemed we were all surprised when, in fact, he did announce that he was stepping down. Many thought he would just keep right on rolling. Could it be a surprise just like that, that he eventually does step down? Yeah, I mean, look, if he is going to do it, he's got to really do it before the beginning of Jan- or the end of January, because as I say, that's when Parliament sits. It'd be stupid to do it. After that, it makes no sense if you're going to do it. Again, it's something that probably needs to be done in the next couple of weeks so the Conservatives can figure out who is going to put their hand up for it and how they elect that person like they did last time so that that person starts at the end of January when Parliament returns and is in place and has some experience when the budget comes down, which will be uh, a significant confidence vote. Uh, is this more than just electing, and I guess this is obviously a redundant question, but uh, is this more uh, than just electing a new leader? This is about choosing an entirely new direction for this party. I mean, is it time to get rid of your granddad's conservatives here? <laughs> well, if you've read some of the recent stories, our polling company, Abacus, did a very interesting look into what Canadians think of conservatives, and I think you nailed it. Uh, Good granddad's conservatives, old, tired, disconnected. Um, many of the things that uh, that came back in the in the survey that was done. So you, you don't need to do the interim leader won't won't do that in and of himself or herself. Uh, but that helps. But uh, but I think you know the, the course for conservatives is first of all, and for those aspiring to be leader, understanding what it is Canadians actually think of you and who you are and what your own members think of you and who you as a party are and where you can go. And I think that disconnect is, uh, is was pretty pronounced with Mr. Scheer. Um, I think any leadership candidate would be wise to get a sense of, of where the party is and where Canadians, particularly Canadians who might be amenable to switching their vote, are on the party's image. Where are the young people in this party? It seems that the left has all of the younger support. I guess that's traditionally the way things are. But it seems they're not doing a lot to attract a younger generation. Um, 
they're not as good at it, but that doesn't mean there aren't young people. I mean, you might have Michelle uh, uh, Rempel Garner uh, enter the race. Yeah. She's it's just she's a millennial. Uh, there, I think the Conservatives elected the youngest member of Parliament in this past campaign at, at 21. Uh, you've got a really interesting new MP from uh, Cornwall, Eric uh, Duncan, a former mayor, openly gay mayor of, of Cornwall. So there, there are conservatives there. You've seen people like Jamie Ellerton, uh, who was on the leaders' tour. He's a millennial himself. Talk about conservatives needing to be open to LGBTQ issues and fairness. So they're there, um, and 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 they have voices. But I think to the broader public, it still may look like a stretch. And I think the names, the people I just mentioned, and others who are more contemporary with millennial voters need to get out and. Why can they? These voters could have a home in the Conservative Party, and that really hasn't happened to the degree that per, perhaps it should. So, what will happen in government until uh, between now and the time that the Conservatives elect a new leader? Are, are things pretty much status quo? Uh, no. Well, I mean, they, they so they did have the throne speech. You'll recall just before the House rose for Christmas. They're going to vote on that when Parliament returns at the end of January. So that's a confidence motion. I suspect it will pass as the bloc have already signaled that they will support it. Um, the trade agreement has to come and get voted on and debated in Parliament. So that's going to happen in January and February. Uh, and then the budget, uh, usually end of February, March, will, will come down. Those are all pretty big things. Then you're going to have, you know, you have it every year, the big Davos meeting where Canada sends over different leaders to talk about uh, the world's elites as to what's wrong and what's right. So that's all going to take place. So quite a few things, Scott. All right. Well, Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. And uh, enjoy the Happy New Year week. You too. Take care, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The new year means new rules coming into effect starting this week. Uh, Allison Smith is with us of Queen's Park today and is on the line now. Allison, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, good morning. Or so, afternoon, I don't know. It's a new year. <laughs> I know, exactly. I'm, we're still all getting, you know, trying to figure out which way is up uh, at this point in time. Allison, a lots, changes, a lots of changes coming as of uh, January 1 this year and mm-hmm. some new laws and such on the books. Give us a little bit of rundown of what we can expect moving forward. Sure. Well, one of the big ones is an end of e-cigarette advertising in the province. Um, for the past, you know, couple of years, you were able to see advertisements for products like Juul or other uh, vaping products on bus stops, in the corners of convenience store windows. Um, now they are going to, all vaping products are going to have to be stored like cigarettes, you know, behind, uh, in little drawers or cabinets behind, uh, behind a counter. Uh, the point of this is to try to deter teens uh, from from wanting coveting these these vaping products, um, it's interesting because the Ontario Liberal government under Kathleen Wynne had actually passed a law doing this very thing uh, in in spring 2018, I believe. And then after the election, when Doug Ford's PCs won, one of the first things they did was actually halt the the rollout of that law. So we're kind of about 18 months behind where we were um, before before Ford took office with that, but it does seem like they've decided to, to go ahead with those rules. Um, Has there been any blowback to that? I mean, does anybody think this isn't a good idea? Has there been some opposition to this at all? 
Well, I mean, the vaping industry, <laughs> they, yeah. they don't like it, but uh, I, they will still be able to advertise their products within uh, sort of specific vape stores, which are going to be 19 plus, or maybe they already are 19 plus to enter. So if you're in that type of shop, you can kind of see all the products and um, purchase them the way that you used to. But I think otherwise people are, are, are pretty okay with this with this change. If anything, the argument is that it hasn't, it's not going far enough to, to ban the ban the products. There's calls for bans on like flavored vaping or flavored vape products. Uh, that's not included in this, although Health Minister Christine Elliott has kind of signaled that that might be to come. Uh, it, excuse me. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I was just wondering, um, other provinces aren't necessarily on the same page. Every province sort of has a different view of this sort of thing. Do they not? They do, yeah. Um, I think in BC that they've been a bit tighter. Actually, in Alberta, interestingly, uh, in their fall budget, they announced that they're going to start taxing vaping products, which I believe will be coming into effect uh, quite soon. Actually, maybe in British Columbia as well. So that would be actually something to look forward to in the the spring budget here in Ontario. Whether the PCs move to 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 place a new tax, like a similar sin tax, like we have on tobacco or alcohol on vaping products because that could be, you know, something that does deter people from purchasing them while also kind of boosting the boosting the the uh, books a little bit. So what about e-scooters? A lot of chatter about e-scooters and, and yeah. there's sort of a trial project that begins now. Tell us about this. Sure. So um, maybe I should just describe how these e-scooters work because people, you know, lots of people have never seen them before, but they're all over the place in in other provinces, uh, in a bunch of cities in the United States. They kind of operate similar to uh, like a Bixie bike where you uh, use an app or your credit card to unlock it and then you can, you know, take it for a spin around the town, uh, get you from point A from point B. But the big difference with the scooters is whereas the Bixie bikes have like lockups stations, right? If, you, if you're checking your bike, you have to put it in a very specific spot. The e-scooters are just kind of everywhere, anywhere they, they want to be. You can pick it up off the side of the road and then leave it on the side of the road. So uh, people are kind of, I think, critical of that aspect, what that's going to mean for, for cities. The, the government has authorized uh, municipalities to launch five-year pilots, uh, which is quite a long pilot period. Um, but the council, for example, the city of, of Hamilton or the city of Toronto, ha- their, their councils have to kind of come up with their own rules first. So it's not like we're going to start seeing them on the street today, most likely, but it, it could be quite soon. Um, and, and these scooters, you can't ride them on the sidewalk. You have to ride them on the road. Uh, and they go up to 24 kilometers an hour. So they're, they're pretty quick. So that's going to uh, pose a different landscape on, on Ontario streets. So basically, the rules of the road, the rules for these are the same as if you are operating a bicycle. Is that correct? So in other words, like you said, you can't ride it on sidewalks or any place that you weren't supposed to or not supposed to be riding a bicycle. Yes, I believe so. Uh, I think that you might have to wear a helmet if you're a kid. Right. Or um, I'm not. Or I think you. Have well, they're even talking about being them. 16 and, and yeah and such. So what happens? Uh, what is this more about? Uh, the average citizen using an electric scooter, or is this about, as you mentioned, those uh, similar to the bike services or the bike share programs where you leave them in certain kiosks and stuff? Is this more in regard to anybody who has a, an e-scooter, or is this specifically designed in and around those types of services similar to the bike rentals? Around, yeah, I think it's in response to, I'll be honest, uh, like 
lobbying and pushes from these companies. One of them's called Bird. Another one's called Lime. Um, they've been kind of aggressively moving into cities around North America and uh, pushing the government there to, to let them operate. Um, I guess it's a bit similar to something like like Uber, you know, who created the, the demand for Uber? Well, it was mm. Uber when they gave everyone the app and, and told people to start using it. So I don't know if the people of Ontario uh, have been clamoring for access to these type of scooters um, or if they're just a new technology and uh, product that's on the market and the government just had to find out how to let them in. Yeah, like you said, that's going to be fascinating to see that unfold uh, as we see more and more of these on, on city streets and such. Uh, but what about... Yeah, interesting, uh, uh, just a funny tidbit about them. Yeah, go ahead. Um, in, in Alberta, they've been around for a few months, um, maybe since the summer. And in outside the Alberta legislature uh, this fall, they have a big, huge fountain. Um, and someone threw one or two of the e-scooters into the fountain and they had to uh, shut it down for and close it off for like days and it cost hundreds of thousands of dollars oh, because no. they were worried the batteries had leaked into the water. So oh, <laughs> these man. are the type of problems uh. I, I foresee us uh, running into here in Ontario soon too. All right. What about out of country health insurance coverage? Yeah. So that is gone. Um, OHIP coverage used to give Ontarians, I think about $400 towards uh, a doctor's visit or a hospital visit. Um, if you were, if you were traveling, uh, the, the government has eliminated that basically on the, their argument is when it's costing taxpayers money to, to provide this. And if you're traveling, well, you know, you, there's travel insurance out there. You can, you, you should be taking care of it yourself. And also that, I mean, we know, well, from what we know of, like, for example, the American healthcare system, $400 doesn't get you very far anyways. So, you know, people were kind of stuck even if they had the insurance. Um, the one change or one thing that's going to still stay in place is for kidney dialysis patients are still going to be able to get that covered if they travel because uh, I guess if you are someone who, who requires uh, regular kidney dialysis and you can't, don't have insurance, you basically can't ever leave the country because you mm. it, you require it so much. So that was kind of a um, a, a just a, a one thing that they allowed to keep going. And uh, boy, I was kind of surprised at this one too. But I guess you know there's a demand for this, there's a need for this, or or is there? But dogs on restaurant patios, these are outdoor patios yeah. uh, spaces. I didn't realize this was an issue. Yeah, big news. Uh, yeah, that was announced a little a little while ago. Um, also, the, the, one of the, the they're allowed in breweries now too. So I feel like this is kind of fits into uh, Doug Ford's kind of trademark buck of beer type announcement. It's like a feel good announcement. They could you know show photos of cute doggies on on brewery floors having a great time. So uh, I think that's not gonna. No one's really complaining about that. Uh, I guess that's just kind of a, a fun one. I think they're also going to be allowed to sell alcohol in the airport like 24-7. So you don't yeah. have to wait till yeah. uh, 11 a.m. for a cocktail at Pearson Airport anymore. So uh, out of all of these, uh, and, and some are minor, some are, are uh, I guess, obviously the, the vaping restrictions are, are quite a major uh, mm-hmm, major mm-hmm. step forward. Uh, that being said, uh, are, which one of these, which stands out? Is there anything great here? Would be the vaping would be the biggest thing, the biggest change that we're going to see coming in Ontario? Well, actually, one we haven't mentioned yet and is not quite in effect yet, but it's coming this month, we're, we're led to believe, and that is going to be expanding access 
two and licenses for for cannabis stores. Um, so up until now, the government, it, uh, as you probably know, had only given out I think about seventy five licenses province wide to to private companies to sell to sell marijuana. Um, but they announced last month that they're going to be lifting that cap and they're getting rid of the lottery system and basically anyone's going to be able to apply for for a retail license. Uh, of course, there'll be rules and, you know, you have to meet certain qualifications, but mm-hmm. what that is going to mean in practice is that we're going to see a lot more cannabis stores um, opening around the province. Last year, the, the Ontario Cannabis Store, which is the name of the, the corporation that, that distributes and sells marijuana online, uh, lost $42 million. So uh, I think what the, the, the government is learning is that they really have to open up the access to these products because people aren't necessarily, you know, lots of people just don't live close enough to a store to make it easy for them to buy these products. So I think what we're going to see is a lot more of those popping up all over the place very soon. Any idea when all of that is going to come into play? What we know is they said the changes will come into effect January 2020. So that's now. So I think we'll probably start hearing about a new application process in in the cup the coming weeks. Of course, it'll take a little while for people to open stores, but there's also a lot of cannabis uh, companies that are just waiting on the edge of their seat for the minute this was to ha- this is going to happen. And I think they'll be they'll be very quick to the draw when it comes to getting getting stores open once they're allowed. Allison Smith has been with us. Queens Park today. Uh, new year means new laws, new regulations, and some changes uh, the way we do things. Allison, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No problem. Have a great day. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.